Hello and welcome to this discussion of brand new book against decolonization with its author Doug Stokes. Thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you very much, Connor. Love to be here. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, having read this, also your critic column, having seen some of your prior interviews, I can tell that you've got a serious passion both about the cultural revolution that is currently cannibalizing our heritage <clears throat> at home and how this has a knock-on effect to Britain and broadly more America and the rest of the West on the world stage. But do you mind explaining your, your background and, and what drew your interest to this particular topic? Well, my, my, I can talk about my background in an autobiographical sense, or my academic background, or I can talk about both, basically. I'm happy to talk about whatever you want me to talk about. Go off, about. we have plenty of time. Well, basically, I was born and bred in, uh, in London, East London, young kid, grew up in a very ordinary, very poor work, uh, working class family in Hidden Hackney, in East London, all right? So I had a quite unconventional upbringing, you know, and kind of moved move through that and then did my degree and then my master's. I'm skipping over a lot here, right? But I'm getting, you know, so, so I sort of, so, but so I think the reason I'm saying that to you is because I think that that background, you do get working class academics, no doubt about that. But working class academics that come, especially from like um, inner cities, the ghettos, uh, are, qu are quite rare. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that to you is because that does, to some extent, key into some of my, the passion and why I've written this book. Because I think that this, uh, so what, what made me write this book about decolonizing and, and a sort of what I think see as very much sort of illiberal and highly authoritarian trends in, in universities, and also pushing a kind of very poisonous and I think a very dangerous kind of almost like a race war ideology if you want to put it in those kind of very blunt, blunt terms. And so for, for a kid like me who stood against racism and uh, come from a very multiracial background, and then to go through the university system, which itself is incredibly diverse in terms of students and staff and incredibly rich as a result of that, yeah? And, uh, to, but to sort of see, especially in the last sort of three or four years, the introduction of really quite pernicious, malign, highly liberal ideas around uh, race. Uh, essentially, so you know, we, can, we can unpack it to some extent, but essentially the, the, the notion of whiteness, white supremacy, and, and the idea that white people, by the dint of their, their ethnicity, are somehow structurally privileged in relation to uh, ethnic, ethnic minorities in this country. <clears throat> and so, so, so not only does the data not support that when you, when you look at the data, and which is readily accessible basically by, by universities and, and, and public institutions, British institutions, right? Not only does the data not, not, not support that, but I think that that, that kind of in, in, the, some, in the structural context that we're seeing in British politics, but also in the international system, it, to, to play with matches while sitting on top of a tinderbox shift of economic distribution of power to, to, to China, the deindustrialization, uh, the, the non-representation of, of ordinary people's political agency within our, poli our political system, the denigration of our country, the denigration of our history, the denigration of national pride, to be told ultimately uh, that um, you are somehow collectively responsible for uh, something, when, if you look at the history of this country, uh, mass land clearances of ordinary people off to pushed, herded into urban slums, mm. Victorian Britain, average mortality at age of about 30 to 40 years old, mass disease, mass squalor, 
nobody voted for the empire. And that's even before you get into the history of, the, of how this country ended slavery. And, and so do you see what I mean? So essentially, you're being told that you need to repudiate your history. N national pride is a bad thing. Uh, and, and essentially, get on your knees and worship, basically, this, uh, this ideology. And then the irony of, of all of this is ethnic, if you look at the data on ethnic, ethnic minorities in terms of outcomes, educational attainment, etc., but even in terms of patriotism, you know, very counterintuitively, if you look at a lot of the data, opinion polling data on ethnic minority views of the police, if we go to the George Floyd example, right, um, very pro-police, more than uh, Indian, uh, East Asian heritage and African, I think, African black people are more pro-police than the white majority. So, so it's kind of like this simplistic denigration, simplistic repudiation of British culture. And so <clears throat> my background to writing the book was to look at the data and to relate it to bigger themes in British politics, but also in, in the international system and say, and say, look, we need to sort of like get a sense of ourselves again, be proud of ourselves. It's a mixed history, no doubt about that. But we need to have a sense of national solidarity, national unity. Uh, of course, debate and contestation, but this constant drumbeat of national repudiation in the context of the rise of highly illiberal authoritarian states, civilizational states in the international system is a deeply, almost like a suicidal move. Yeah, so, so that historical revisionism has an acid effect on how we see ourselves. And if we, if we don't understand how to normatively assert ourselves and, and <coughs> understand our history comparative to other nations as, frankly, morally superior, much more industrious, how do we assert ourselves on the world stage? And, and all of these have deeply individual impacts, just both culturally and, and policy-wise. Because, as you said, there's very few white working-class boys these days that have the opportunity to become an academic through serious hard work like you did, because they're, as a, as a percentage of population, second to bottom, the least likely to attend university and get the same educational outcomes as their, their black minority and, and female counterparts. The only one below that are uh, Irish travellers, and they are voluntarily completely outside the bounds of society themselves, because they're quite, quite nomadic. Whereas most white working class boys, they've been denigrated culturally um, for either toxic masculinity or, or their race as you go over and systemically discriminated against both in America by affirmative action, which is now extinct, or by things like the Equality Act over here, which has been disparately applied. Mm -hmm. And lots of these pieces mm -hmm. of legislation come from these ideologies which have a focus on intergroup equality. They, they, they do the... Um, uh, racism by, what was the term that it was used? It was racism by consequence, that's it, where they infer between group disparities that some racism must have happened if, if the groups have different outcomes. And that, that focus on equality which, which uh, destroys any consideration of each person as being an individual moral in their own right. And then if you, if you kick that all the way up the scale, as you said, well, China's going to end up eating our lunch on, on the world stage. China have captured quite a few of our, of our post-colonial territories. I mean, Barbados was just given back to Barbados, and as soon as they do, they, they go on the Belt and Road. Same with plenty of countries in Africa, same with, with Hong Kong now being, being subsumed. So I, I make you right in that if we see ourselves as fundamentally weak at home, we're also going to, be, going to be weak abroad, and that has major consequences for the next generation, what opportunities they get, and 
the economic opportunities and the international relations that we that we have globally. I, I think that's great. Well, the, 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 completely agree with, but, but, but there's also the, in terms of there are the kind of the hard power elements that we can look at, but there there are also I kind of try and draw this out a bit in the book too, in, in kind of the deep kind of cultural narratives that that we inhabit. Essentially, human beings by their very nature are kind of systems meaning making creatures. We, we we all need a sort of a sort of I guess to some extent a sense of purpose, grand narrative, yes. a grand narrative, whether that's to do with our family or our work or something transcendental or whatever. Essentially, you know, happy the path to happiness ultimately, I think, is is that sense of higher purpose in some senses, right? And and that and and so 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 what I think I try to draw out in the book is that the, the subversion of uh, certain sets of meta values, meta or metaphysical values, ultimately that have sat at the heart of Western civilization, especially in the post-war period, right? And 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 the subversion of that. So so so, uh, so meritocracy. I mean, you hear a lot about meritocracy, right? Or uh, or, or kind of like um, hard work, self-discipline, which are now coded within this new cultural dispensation as themselves uh, elements of white supremacy. Or, or whiteness culture and stuff but like that. That was that Smithsonian chart that said showing up to work on time, hard work, the Protestant work ethic, the nuclear yeah. family. Yeah. They're all elements of whiteness, implying that they're somehow inaccessible to, to other cultures. So, 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 not, so, so not only do you have that, and then when you aggregate that at a, at a social and a society level, when, 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 when decision-making processes are subordinate to that set of metaphysical values, i.e. some sort of equity, Thing where essentially you don't select on the basis of merit or ap- application or hard work or, or uh, human agency and dignity, but you select on the basis of some sort of intersectional oppression matrix and some sort of identity characteristic. You know, it, when you aggregate that on a on a social on a society level, you are on the pathway to civilizational suicide, basically. And interestingly, I would wonder if a lot of these activists that push this kind of idea, they're going for brain surgery, for example, whether they'd say, "Oh, it, the surgeon has uh, has she been selected?" Through for merit or or, or for you know do you know what I mean so so, yes. so 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 when so when so when the, the the rubber hits the road, I suspect we you know we, we we could abandon that pretty quickly, but in terms of you know the, the so 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 I so so I think that that's that's a big problem if we carry on that that way. But then also it, it's deeply patronising as well, is it not? To to ethnic, ethnic minorities again, if you look at the data on ethnic minority attainment in this country. The idea that we're characterized by white supremacy or it's a deeply embedded structural racism, it's just, it, I, I don't see how you can sustain that narrative in the face of what the data show. So, for example, I think uh, is it Chinese men out earn white men by about 30%. If you look at the educational attainment of uh, in, uh, East Asians and, 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 and Indians, even if you look at the data, for example, so a lot, in a lot of these kind of the, the cultural narratives that we see, Black is, treat, is treated as a, dis, as a non, non-disaggregated category, deeply patronising, in my, in my, to my mind, quite racist to, to quite a large extent as well. Because what essentially you're doing is you're, you're, you're sticking a huge uh, conglomerate of humanity into this box, what we call the black box, basically, right? But you're talking, so even if you look at like Nigeria, Nigeria is a country, is, is, is characterised by the Yoruba, Igbo, Christian, uh, is, uh, Islamic, rural, urban, mm. so even, even a country's di- is like that is so diverse, right? So if you look at the data, for example, on black African educational attainment in British schools, 
They have uh, lower levels of exclusion rates than white than the white majority. They have uh, invariably do as well at GCSE and A levels as well. Going to universities are much higher numbers, basically, as opposed to Black Caribbean, which are excluded in a higher level than the white majority. Mm. So if you're talking about uh, systemic racism against black people, but then you have when you control for different demographics within the, that, that, that black population and you're seeing differential outcomes, which is the, which is the primary way in which the, the, this kind of decolonial de narrative and the kind of uh, intersectional ideology sustains itself, a disparate outcome, right? A negative dis disparate outcome proves an underlying system of oppression. So even within, when you control for that black category, you're seeing differential outcomes relative to the white majority. Black Africans tend to do better. Mm. Black Afro-Caribbeans tend to do worse at school. So if, if it's racism is your, is your explanatory va variable, your, your sort of univariate analysis, differential outcome, negative, ah, it's racism or sexism, then how do you explain the stuff like that? Do you see what I mean? Yes. I, see, I, I think that cuts to the heart of what you were saying earlier. We're sitting atop a tinderbox and they're playing with matches. I, I, I think... Frankly, because data like the Saul report is so accessible, and then when he breaks it down and says, actually, it's not systemically racist if you separate by culture and geography and family structure, frankly, there's higher rates of fatherlessness among Afro-Caribbean boys than there are black African boys, particularly because of high rates of Christianity. That's accessible, and yet they still call him a racist. And so I think, and you, you see this with critical race theory, intersectionality, the, the decolonization strategy. If you revoke Britain's right to say that our culture, our history and the like is superior, it's more productive, it's more conducive to um, lowercase p moral progress, because I disagree with the, the long arc towards history narrative. Um, if, if you revoke that right, and we still feature mass immigration, which has lots of economic and cultural problems, you revoke the ability to mediate those cultural differences. You revoke the ability to have people to have a culture to assimilate to, to feel more patriotic if, if they are immigrants and, and non-white over here. And so you make what you said earlier, that, that race war, inevitable. And so I do think there is a sizable element of ideologues that are, are stoking that ethnic tension simply because they want violence, because, because they think that they're, they're going to win. And, and that's deeply disturbing to me that quite a few of our institutions seem to be nodding along with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would necessarily say that ideologues want to stoke a race war because they think they're going to win. I can see why you'd say that. I, th I think like, like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, definitely. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you actually look at the reality of it in terms of the balance of forces, that's just a fantasy. It's mm -hmm. a total fantasy. So, but, you know, so that they can think that, but, you know, whatever. So I don't... I, I think I think I think what it is, I think it is it is it is a kind of ideological capture, as you allude to, basically, there that there is a lot of that going on. Uh, I, and in the book, I try to talk about I mean, I try to draw out some sort of I, I do a lot of sort of analysis, theoretical and philosophical analysis. I sort of I feel it's really important the reader gets a sense of that in terms of where a lot of these intersectional ideas come from and then go over the data. But I kind of uh, I also sort of do do a sort of lot of, a lot of sort of the sort of philosophical analysis too, so I, so I try to draw out. And, but then I also relate that, and I try to do an explanation uh, as to why I think we are seeing these trends take off quite a lot. And so um, I kind of draw on certain sets of literatures. One one I found really persuasive, and Matt Goodwin I think has drawn on this literature too, as a, as have others. 
is this kind of idea of the, the, the emergence of the professional managerial class. Yes, he calls it the new elite. But... The new elite. But So he's basically is borrowing from uh, Christopher Lind and Robert Bur Burnham and the Eichenreich, etc. There's, there's a long kind of post-war interesting. Interestingly, a lot of that comes from a kind of conservative Marxist fusion, mm. if you will, oddly enough. Basically, there's a kind of Marxist critique of woke that you see, but there's also obviously a conservative or, or, or a kind of more liberal critique of woke. Well, because 1984 was written in response to, to James Burnham, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and a kind of sympathetic. So, 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 so it's kind of so. So what, what I try, I, try, I take those ideas of this, the emergence of the professional managerial class. So essentially the capitalists aren't going to win or the communists aren't going to win during the Cold War period. The, the ones that are going to win are those who kind of capture the levers of bureaucratic power, concentrated deep state or deep institutional power. So ultimately the bureaucrats win. Right, so you have the emergence of this, this kind of this sort of professional managerial class within the system, and you sort of see it now within the kind of the dispensation within British politics. Although you have a so-called Tory government or a government in power, they can't seem to ever do anything. There's a whole range of reasons we can come into that if you want mm. as to why they're kind of so uh, uh, ineffective in many senses with a big majority as well. But you do really have that one state removed state, this sort of deep state or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, this kind of Sort of quangos, sort of one one step removed from power, basically. So, so, the, so the minister says, you know, we've got to stop the boats, and suddenly she's faced with both supernatural, supernational forms of, of of resistance, but also sort of civil service. So, so, and, and, you know, Blair did the sort of the quango state, put that on, on steroids. Then you have a kind of legal, uh, uh, institutional value nexus composed through, you know, and, and, and suited and, 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 and sort of secured through various bits of in a very innovative legislation like the Equality Act. And I've written about that a bit, as, as have others. And so the Equality Act is a really interesting one. So, 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 what, so what I try and do in the book is the professional managerial class. So you have this kind of embedded class, non-democratic, not been elected by anybody, just but kind of in power and kind of control the institutions. Um, and so... Uh, and so what I argue in the book is as you have a transformation of the Western, especially the Anglophone political economies, with sort of global, the advent of globalism or globalization, the outsourcing of jobs, the kind of collapse of moral authority of traditional institutions, the kind of post-industrialization, the service switch to a service economy, and what that does to the class structure of this country, but also America to quite a large extent too, uh, and, and, and politics uh, kind of, and, and so, so so, so you, you sort of see that. And so my argument in the book is what you, the way in which the PMC, the professional managerial class, now seeks to rule is no longer through sort of obviously democratic accountability and control, but through the endless generation of a kind of politics of vulnerability. And, 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 and essentially, so, so essentially there are vulnerable populations, there are COVID populations or there are children populations or there are black populations that are subject to racism or there are women on the transit, you know, you know, it's endless sort of vulnerable populations, right? And the solution is always pretty much the same. Give me power. Yes, yeah, to manufacture consent. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah, exactly. And through, through, a moral, through the moral re-inscribement of, of bureaucratic power and authority, right? Mm -hmm. So it's essentially it's a moral arc. It's a very sort of interesting but quite common strategic framework going on here, right? There are vulnerable populations, yeah? That, and so I'm the parents. It creates a kind of dyad as well, the parent-child dyad, right? So I think to go back to your original question, quite a bit of a digression here, yeah. but so I think the way I see it 
is I see, I interpret the politics of race in, as uh, taken up by invariably uh, highly educated, very privileged, upper middle class, white liberals mm. is, is, is about that sort of, techno, sort of Blairite technocratic politics of vulnerability. Give my universities or give the BBC or give the Channel 4 or give whatever. This and, and you know, because the, the endless sort of, sort of politics of vulnerability, these are vulnerable populations, and, and, and so it plays to that, it plays to that kind of progressive script, very Blairite type script. It parasitizes that meaning making, um, instinct, absolutely, that you said yeah. And so it gives, it gives them a sense of purpose. And then also, interestingly, within that framework is the elision of class. So basically, so this is the thing that really gets my goat, right? I mean, this the sex pistols used to talk about anger as an energy, right? So coming from the background that I've come from, I've kind of, you know, I've kind of used that energy to help to drive me forward to some extent, right? So, so what you have, therefore, then, is you have these people who have bureaucratic and institutional power, incredible power, uh, and they, 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 they will save, they'll uplift these vulnerable populations through their, through their bureaucratic means and control, legalistic, institutional, etc., right? Essentially... Uh, and but what I find, especially about the politics de decolonizing and the politics of, of the kind of the, the sort of critical race theory that we see, is that there's the collapse or the elision of class with with race or other vulnerable categories. And I think that's deeply, deeply disturbing, and I think it's deeply unjust, and I think it's deeply unfair. How you can possibly say a white kid from a council estate in Hackney, or from Hull, or or from wherever, right? Is somehow has some higher level of privilege or advantage than, say, Rishi Sunak. Yeah, yeah, it's obscene. It's obscene. So that so there is also so th it's not just about a, the, the the PMC, the professional managerial classes that run this country <coughs> and run international institutions. You can keep, you can go analyze it more. There is also it's not it's not just about structure. It's also about agency, right? So there is structure. These structures which they occupy. Right, but it doesn't have to be a conscious conspiracy per se. It's a structural logic. It kind of yes. generates these kinds of outcomes. It generates these kind of institutional deep state kind of pressures going on. Right, but then there's also an agency in it, and I think a lot of the agency in it is like pure careerism. You make the right noises, diversity, inclusion. Da -da 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 -da. I know people. You talk to them, have a pint with them, or you talk to them on a normal level. You know, it's like. But, you know, they, they make the right noises. Yes. Right? I've met these types in Westminster as so, well. So, you, so, you, you, so you've got that going on, basically. So pure careerism, careerism. Or you also get on the flip side, you do get like kind of what I thought was sort of the Blairite true believers that basically are running a fat packet, right? Nice houses, uh, looking around and saying, you know, oh, but I'm, I've done really, really well. And, I've, and they've got this kind of inner guilt. They feel really guilty. So what they do is they disaggregate their guilt by basically this politics of upliftment. I will save these vulnerable populations. I will uplift them. I give will... me power. Give me money and my nice yeah. pensions. I'll steward history along its long arc and yeah. then I'll be on the right side of yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what might be useful there to, to disentangle the original ideology from the managerial mindset, to do a bit of a genealogy, which you actually go through in, in the book in, in very good detail, and then see how that, that particular elite capture happens. So from the start, you raised the spectre of Marxism. You did allude to the genesis of third worldism in the USSR, very similar to the managerial class being sort of like Lenin's vanguard or, or Lenin's opinion on colonialism, where 
it was the application of Marxist class theory to countries. One, one country was only richer because it unilaterally extracted from the poorer. And then it seems to go over to France and eventually the, the new left in America with the likes of C. Wright Mills, who, who starts complaining, hey, why, why did you guys abandon your commitment to socialism just because Stalin looked bad? Well, actually, we need to, we need to retranslate it to new means. Mm. Um, do, you, do you mind talking a little bit about Fanon and, and Sartre? Yeah, I mean, um, so so well, so I do a sort of potted history, yes. sort of, of of philosophy and social theory, and and the art and the potted history for your your viewers is is basically um, what there was a crisis in Marxism, right? There's classic crisis in Marxism in the 1930s, especially with the rise of Nazi Germany. So essentially, the the, the Marxist theory of of history, you know, the, the political economy, a critique of capitalism was, you know, you have these contradictory classes that are thrown up. And through the objective nature of, of the nature of this class conflict, you'll have uh, sets of, sort of dialectical materialism, you'll have a certain overthrow, and then socialism that become communism. So ultimately, it's, a, it's an objective, it's a scientific, and, and also therefore rooted in the Enlightenment to quite a large extent too, right? In terms of it's rational, it has a theological view of history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the rise of Germany and also the non-revolutionary nature of a lot of Western societies and the defeat of, of a lot of communist forces by the Nazis, but also by liberal democracies, you had a, basically a crisis, a crisis in, in kind of Marxist thought, uh, uh, essentially. So, and, and obviously a lot of Marxist intellectuals fled Germany and went, went to, so you, you had the Frankfurt School that obviously went to, to the States. You had quite a lot living in occupied Paris as well, like Simone de Beauvoir that then mapped Marxism yeah. onto feminism lived yeah. under Nazi occupation. Yeah, so so so, but essentially, the, the the meta point I wish to make there is, uh, you saw this turn, this cultural turn in Marxist social theory away from a kind of objectivist historical materialist. So so these these social contradictions are rooted in a kind of the material reality of capitalism, the political economy of capitalism. Uh, so they, they moved they moved away from that idea to this to this notion of of the, of the centrality and the primacy of culture, basically. So. So why are we not seeing a revolution uh, or, or the, the objective generation of, of class contradictions within capitalism? It's basically because the, the, the masses are brainwashed and duped, ultimately. So, so the various kind of cultural out, outgrowths from, from Marxist social theory and the cultural turns. So the Frankfurt School was one of them. It's the early Frankfurt and late Frankfurt School stuff, basically, where sort of talked about the culture industries and, and that kind of thing. And then there are other interesting turns, so Althusser, Louis Althusser, who was like a French Marxist, strangled his wife, by the way. Mm. Uh, liked to drink, liked to smoke. Yeah, murdered his wife, basically. But so he, he was big in the 50s, uh, and he really dominated French academic and intellectual life, Louis Althusser, basically, and had a big inf influence on other kind of very prominent Marxists like Nikos, Nikos Polancis. He did a lot of interesting work on the state and the, and the role of the state as a point of cohesion within capitalist society, basically. Uh, uh, Althusser was very much a structuralist philosopher. So basically, again, he rooted his critique of capitalism in, 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 object, on, in objective relations of production of capitalism itself. Uh, so, and the reason I'm, going, I'm doing this is because I'm about to do a flip, flip the script about where we, you know, how we've gone forward from that. So essentially, uh, so Althusser's structuralism, he talked about, for example, ideological state apparatus. So essentially, uh, the, the culture literally acted like a sort of an ideological machine to interpolate people into an ideological framework to maintain capitalism. So basically, the, the, the working class were brainwashed by you know, uh, these kind of pre-existing extant ideological categories, taxpayer or uh, proud patriot 
and interpolate you into a system of meaning, right? But that was objective and rooted in the, in the, in the means of production of capitalism. It was an ideological state apparatus, big part of Althusser's theory. So people like Foucault and Derrida, and then later outgrowths from that, for example, Edward Said, post-colonialism, etc., were explicitly anti, um, they, that's why they're post-structuralist. And there was a reaction in the French Academy against Althusser's structural Marxist ideological reading of capitalism. And basically, so Foucault and Derrida were very reactive against that. And they were far more playful, kind of dandyish and playful. And basically, they, they said that meanings, maps of meaning and epistemes and discourses, and so it's not about ideology in terms of being injected into your head by the media. It's far more, it kind of much more free floating. It floats out there. And interestingly, um, the power relations within that are circulating within the systems of meaning itself. Althusser, as a Marxist, said power exists in the state and the capitalist ruling class, and they're using power to oppress. The Foucault and Derrida and other outshoots, post-colonialism, Edward Said, etc., power circulates within the discourse and episteme. So essentially, so uh, Foucault as a gay man uh, talked about, for example, homosexuality. So his thing was homosexuality is a biological reality or whatever, you know, essentially has remained the same. Right throughout history, but different cultures have coded homosexuality differently. Right, so and that so the, the the reality of it has remained the same, but the discursive systems of meaning around homosexuality have changed. They're culturally contingent. These discourses are culturally contingent, uh, essentially, and within that, as power relations. So in some cultures, homosexuality is celebrated. It's something to be you know it's wonderful. The ancient Greek Sparta, for example, you know, you know those kind of relations. Uh, but then, and so for, for Foucault, he sort of talked about the medicalization of, of, of homosexuality and the gradual kind of medicalization of madness. So that was a long way of basically saying that you have these, the, the kind of the, the increasing uh, rejection of a kind of a centralized sets of power, agency in terms of its generation of an ideological framework, and much more of a playful notion. So that's when we get to Edward Said, the kind of father of post-colonial thought, and also sort of a lot of the de decolonized activists and the decolonial thought. So people in the British Museum or uh, well-being in the approach of England, they're parroting this stuff, but I doubt if they really know the theoretical genealogy of where it actually comes from. So, 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 so Saeed took those ideas, basically, of the Foucauldian notions of the playfulness and, and the, the, the power-knowledge relationship with epistemes and, and discourse, and he talked about how Orientalism, which he argued was the kind of central discourse within the Anglophone world in particular, and the, and the, and the imperial powers, socially constructed the Orient, somewhere mysterious, where the women are very alluring, the men are kind of, you know, sort of, uh, sort of a bit, bit more barbaric, quick, quicker to temper. So again, he drew on Foucault, this kind of discourse, discursive framework, but also Derrida, who said that basically at the heart of Western philosophy is always a binary structure. Male and one's privileged and one's un inferior. Male, female, white, black, basically Western knowledge, non-Western knowledge, right? So if you wrap all that up, basically what you've got is de decolonizing and, and sort of draws on this post-structural, this post-colonial thing, which was radically anti-Marxist, by the way. This is why I, sort of, I say this in the book, but it was kind of the, the, that's why you get a lot of left Marxists could, very critical of a lot of the woke wokery basically, because it ultimately rejects a materialist conception of history, it rejects a, a critique of capitalist political economy, for their view, basically. 
so 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 that's so that's it. so essentially so that's where that's how we end up with this emphasis in critical race theory and other sort of ideological systems about the emphasis on 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 knowledge and knowledge power relationships and also why policing of language is so important basically because a word if, I, if a word ultimately so you, is a signifier right and the, but the, the, the concept it generates in your mind is 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 is, is the signified basically so so words can change so that's why you see what i mean so so if i'm talking about um somebody or say, say for example the trans debate you know so words ultimately have to be policed because they aren't just about the when i say a word it isn't just sort of talking about a referent in a neutral sense it's in a, in a sort of post-structural social constructivist framework and social constructivism is the, is the catch-all term that captures what i've just said in a social constructivist framework words literally conjure into being the thing that they talk about mm. so if i if i talk about you know uh, somebody uh, uh, trans or i talk about you know you see what I mean? I, I'm conjuring that concept in a wider episteme, in a wide discursive framework. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.